Hello and welcome to episode 24 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Bobonis, and joining me today is Gene Tunney, founder and director of Adept Economics. I'll be talking to Gene about his new or upcoming CIS paper, Rationalizing Regulation, and about how to help the economy recover from the coronavirus crisis. Gene Tunney, how are you? Good, thanks, Salvatore. Great to be here. Thrilled to have you on the show in advance of your uh, upcoming CIS paper. Uh, Look, in the paper, I've had the chance to get a sneak peek at it. You call Australia's regulatory landscape, quote, anachronistic, inconsistent, and excessive. (laughs) Now, that's a a lot of criticism. Can you give us some examples of what you mean there? Okay. So one of the things that frustrates me and... I must admit I've got a lot of uh, Queensland examples in there because I'm in Brisbane. Right. I used to be in, uh, in Canberra. I was in the Commonwealth Treasury for a while. And one of the things that annoyed me when I came back to Queensland, and I never appreciated just how much uh, you know, our lives are, are affected by really silly regulations, things like rules around retail trading hours, for example, something that really annoys me. And I'd say that that's anachronistic because it comes to us from a time when there are all these mom and pop stores around, if you know what I mean. And we've got rules that prevent Woolworths and Coles from opening at certain times. And it used when I got back from Canberra, I remember it was just really silly. At six o'clock on a, a Sunday, they wouldn't. Actually, I think that that's uh, still the case in some areas, in, and on a Saturday too. Just really silly regulations like that, and it's basically designed to help protect, uh, you know, IGA, help support IGA and uh, some of those independent grocers. So it's become a protection measure. It's come to us from a time when we had uh, mom and pop stores, as I, as I said. So I think that's anachronistic. And that's something that's annoying and imposes costs on consumers. But one of the things I, I just found extraordinary is, you know, when I started looking into this, just the amazing amount of regulation there is out there. I mean, I knew there was a lot of regulation, but I just didn't appreciate how how much and how complex it is and, and how difficult it is getting around across what's going on. So I was helped out a lot by my research officer in my business, Adept Economics, Ben Scott, who helped out a lot. And just looking at it, we just discovered that you know, we've known about many of these issues for years, and there's always been talk of reform, and there have been various different government processes to fix up these regulations. For, we know we've had issues with occupational licensing for many years, issues about recognition of qualifications for plumbing and gas fitting and all of that sort of thing, electricians in different states needing a particular type of ticket. The coronavirus crisis has emphasised the need to improve a lot of these regulatory policy settings and there's been some announcements about how they are going to finally try and fix up these occupational licensing issues. But this was something that the Rudd government looked into doing back in you know, the late uh, 2000s. And this and this was part of a really great initiative, I think, from 
the Rudd government, which was to promote this seamless national economy. But yet we're still we, – not a lot's really <laughs> happened there. So maybe – look, Salvador, but I, I do have to admit, you know, we're much better than we have been historically, I think. So we have have moved – in some areas I think we've done better. We've moved to uh, less prescriptive regulations in occupational health and safety, for example. But, yeah, there's still a lot of regulation out there that I think we can – we could closely examine and think about improving or removing. I mean, let me go back to that issue of the, the store opening hours. Uh, clearly, these rules were put in place in an era of a male breadwinner family with the idea that uh, a man, you know, would be out in the workforce nine to five and a woman would not be working and would be a homemaker who does the shopping during daytime hours where she was shopping at a store run by a male breadwinner who was there working nine to five. And the idea was to protect this social structure. Well, you know, we no longer embrace that social structure. Women obviously have had, not only have careers now, it, it, it almost sounds old fashioned to say, oh, and today women have careers. Of course, women have careers. They've had careers for 50 years. Um, yeah. So how much are these regulations a holdover? And, you know, now just woefully outdated, no longer no longer meeting the goals for which they were designed. Well, I think there's a, yeah, you make a good point there. I mean, we've moved to that 24-7 economy. That's right. Now, thinking more broadly, if we go back to what Paul Kelly was talking about in The End of Certainty, you know, the great book about the history of the 1980s and how we basically moved away from that old Australian model, the Australian settlement. And fundamental pillars of that Australian settlement were, were things like uh, the you know, centralised wage uh, setting system. There was also white Australia policy. There was protection. Now, we've done away with uh, a lot of that, but we do, we do still have heavy regulation in IR, of course, and I think that's because that was, that was a, that's a hangover of that model. We think that to promote higher living standards, we need to have lots of, you know, we need to regulate the economy. So, and, you know, IR, the IR is not something I, I've dealt with here because I know Judith's looked at that. And that's and so industrial talk- relations for, for people who are listening. And Judith Sloan, I think, is, has written a paper for us on industrial relations. Yes, yes. And so I think a lot of the other regulate. I think what we've done, we, we think we've got to regulate to try and improve economic outcomes and to protect people. And the issue, the problem is, I think, that we do have a decent social safety net in this country. And so I think... A lot of this regulation that is designed to, you know, protect uh, protect people probably isn't. Well, it's costing business, it's preventing economic activity, costing jobs, and it's not the right way to to try to achieve you know, better economic or social outcomes. So that that's a general point I, I'd like to make. Well, let me just take this opportunity to just say some hellos. We have uh, Suresh watching, Anthony, Elizabeth tuning in from New Jersey. 
uh, Max is there, Steven, uh, Cassie, uh, Mayping Mango is back. <laughs> Thanks everyone for tuning in, you and uh, 20 or 30 other people. We really appreciate it. Uh, Gina, a lot of what you write about and a lot of what people are concerned about when it comes to the kind of heavy hand of the state in regulation has to do with environmental regulation. And, and I know you're not an environmental lawyer, but could you at least tell us a little about the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, the EPBC, and what it means for Australia's economy? Well, this is the uh, Federal Environmental Protection Act, and there are counterparts at the state level. And you know, for years, we've been talking about trying to streamline things and governments are making moves in that direction. So again, what I have, what I I found is as we've looked across various different regulatory areas, there is an appreciation of the the problems of having all of this overlapping regulation. So we've got Commonwealth and state legislation, right? And I mean, this was famously uh, this this came to public attention, particularly with the uh, there was a Traveston Dam decision in. Queensland here. So this was going to be a major dam built north of Brisbane on the Mary River, which was to provide water security to uh, to Brisbane to southeast Queensland residents. And people may recall that one of the reasons why it didn't go ahead was ultimately Peter Garrett, who was the environment minister the, at the time, ruled against it because it would endanger a lungfish. Whereas it had actually, you know, it was something that was being proposed by the state government here and had gone through all the environmental processes here and ended up not going ahead. So, look, this is, I don't want to be, I, I recognise that we do need to protect the environment. At the same time, we're really constraining a lot of economic activity and it's a lot of these environmental regulations that are constraining development. I mean, we look at, particularly what's happening with mining. How long it, it took Adani you know, to actually begin the, you know, the construction of their mine. Right. Now, I was chatting with uh, a former treasurer here in Queensland, Keith DeLacy, who was a treasurer for the Goss government, and and he would get Keith was involved in a business called MacArthur Coal, which was later bought by Peabody. And Keith was saying how years ago, maybe a couple of decades ago, you could go from conception of a mine to operation in a couple of years, and now it's going to take you a decade, right? And a lot of that's to do with with regulation, and and there's this overlapping of state and and federal regulation, which really ramps up the compliance burden. But we know that we know that we can speed things up if we need to. And this was demonstrated by our Premier here in Queensland, again, lots of Queensland examples, Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk in the 2017, I think it was during the election campaign, when the Adani mine became a big political issue. Well, why isn't it going ahead? And the Premier, to her credit, said, look, I'm going to get involved. I'm going to make sure that we resolve all these issues within two weeks. And, and okay, they actually, <laughs> they actually resolved it because it, it just takes some, some leadership. Things can happen. 
one of the risks is you'd, you've got people in positions in environmental agencies who are essentially oh, Greens activists almost. I mean, essentially want to slow down a lot of these processes. And that's presumably what motivates people to want to go into that kind of work. Uh, look, you raise an important issue, which is if, I, I mean, I think most of us really want to preserve the environment. On the other hand, we want to drink water, we want to use electricity, we want jobs. And so there's always compromises to be made. If a project is ultimately going to be rejected on environmental grounds, shouldn't it be rejected within a year? Uh, and if it's ultimately going to be approved, shouldn't it be approved within a year? Uh, that is, the problem here doesn't seem to be the strictness of the regulations as such. The problem seems to be the lawfare around the regulations, using regulations as a delaying tactic instead of for their intended purpose. Is that a kind of a reasonable summary of the key problem here? I think so. I largely agree with that. I would say that, I mean, what tends to happen is that a project proponent will put forward a, a project and then there'll be an assessment done and then that you know the environmental agency might identify some risks and then the proponent has to then come back with a a plan to deal with the, to mitigate those risks so how are we going to protect those finches i think or black-throated finches i think was the issue with with the dani so i mean that's that's going to put some delay in the process and so that's probably understandable but yes you're right about the the lawfare aspect of it. And what we've got is uh, these NGOs, and I think some of them even get public funding. So these you know, various environmental defenders offices that take it, they, they argue, well, we're acting for the people, for the environment. And so we're going to inject ourselves into these processes and hold up these developments. Right. Well, I so, mean, but again, to push back on that, I mean, uh, personally, I believe in civil society. I want organizations holding people accountable. I, if there is a, a, you know, an important biodiversity resource, I want it protected. But I want that decision now, right? I, I don't want to see people given the tools to simply delay things that are going to happen anyway. I mean, if, if we're going to build a dam because we need the water, let's build the dam tomorrow. Let's not wait 10 years until it becomes a crisis. Uh, I, I mean, I, I would like to press you on this because you're the expert here. I, I'm, this is not my area of study. To what extent are we talking about bad regulations? And to what extent are we talking about the abuse of regulations? Well, I can't see why we need two separate environmental acts. I can't see why we need both state-based and national processes. I think that's something that could be streamlined. I mean, we've got this bigger issue, of course, of duplication of government. But yes, you're right. There is some abuse, arguably abuse of that process. And I think we need to look at that whole issue of the, the lawfare and whether we can cut back on that in some way. because. If you've got a, a decent process where, and you, you're open to public submissions and you should be able to take into account the, 
the public's views that way. I think there's too big a risk of uh, you know, vexatious, spurious uh, lawsuits holding up development. So, yeah, look, generally, I think, yeah, look, I, I, I think that it could be the, the fact that, yeah, people are taking advantage of regulations to hold things up. Arguably, you could maybe we need to improve them. Maybe we need, maybe it's a leadership issue. As I said, there was that example of uh, the Premier here in Queensland really pushing forward with uh, making sure that Adani uh, ap uh, approval process went through uh, as quickly as possible. All right, now we're going to go to viewer questions in just a moment. And actually, I haven't been pitching for viewer questions because we already have about eight lined up. But oh, those wow. of you who are listening, please. <laughs> Well, I haven't even asked yet, but they know it's coming. So please do get your questions in. Uh, we will get to as many of them as possible. In the meantime, please do like the video, press the thumbs up button, but more importantly, subscribe to the channel. If you're not already subscribed to the CIS, please do go ahead and subscribe. It helps us get our message out to other people. So even though you may notice these videos, other people won't get fed them unless our numbers are growing, growing, growing. And then YouTube thinks, all right, we have to advertise these videos to other people. Also, of course, we'd love to have you as a member. You can join the CIS at a $40 membership level if you're not a member already. Of course, if you are a member, please consider upgrading to the full membership, $250 level. And if you do that today, or if you join, join or upgrade to the $250 level, as you know, if you're a regular watcher, I'll send you a signed copy of Liberty and Liberalism, uh, personally signed by me to you. Just a note in your membership that you did sign up at $250 to get the book, and uh, we'll do it. Look, uh, everyone, thanks for watching. And the more you spread about this, the better chance we'll be able to stay on the air, uh, well, forever is what I'd love to do, and I'd love to have you as an audience forever. Um, Gene, we do have a series of questions coming in. Let me start uh, at the beginning, Mayping Mango. Uh, says regulate. This is a point you've already made. Regulations often pander to one vested interest or another. How do you persuade governments, especially state governments, to take away these props from special interests? This is where we need a a proper regulatory review process. This is where we need something like we had uh, twenty five. 30 years ago now, it's amazing how time flies, uh, with the National Competition Policy Review, which where we subjected a lot of the regulations we had to this competition policy review, and there were a lot of, you know, a lot of good changes made. The, the, the current federal government, I can't remember who was prime minister when it was commissioned because we've had so <laughs> there have many, so many. <laughs> yeah. but they commissioned Ian Harper to do the competition policy review, which revealed a lot of uh, areas for potential regulatory improvement, including uh, pharmacies, for example. I know that's something you're interested in, Salvatore. <laughs> yeah, if we have time, we'll, we'll get to it. <laughs> we might chat about that later. So we need a proper regulatory review process. So governments tend to have regulatory review processes of some kind. So there's a, typically requirements for regulatory impact statements or regulatory assessment statements for new regulations. Arguably, there's a bit of accountability theatre there. I think that's what Nick Gruen or Paul Friders, I can't remember who exactly used that term, but there are concerns that there could be accountability theatre. That's just for appearances. 
But having something like that, you need something like that for new regulations. But you also need to be able to review your current stock of regulations, which is why it's good if governments come in and have some sort of, I hate to use the term because it's become very politically loaded, but an audit commission, for example, or, or, or have a competition policy review and then you know, follow through on those recommendations. Uh, to American ears, that all sounds very Australian. Do you support the more kind of blunt instrument populist approach of, you know, for every new regulation, two have to go? As an economist, I'd say no. I'm, I, I think that's, <laughs> uh, I can't see the logic in that. Uh, I mean, look, Politically, it might be a sound strategy and it could lead to better outcomes. I, I don't know. But I mean, what you could do is you could just end up going back to regulations set in 1910 or something that, <laughs> you know, that are still on the books, but no one actually abides by, no one actually remembers and get rid of them. Yeah. I don't know. Look, I, I, I'm not a, you know, a political scientist, uh, but, but I, we do need to have a process where we, we look at that stock of regulations and, and say, well, or, you know, there have to be those sunset clauses. I like that idea. Let's say after 10 years, if you the government doesn't reenact this regulation, then it, it goes away. So they're forced to evaluate it every year and properly evaluate it. Right. Too often we've had, uh, there are examples of regulation, I think, that have been waived through these processes that they haven't been subject to the full scrutiny of a regulation impact statement. Uh, of uh, which does allow for public scrutiny. I think that's happened. Uh, that happens quite a bit because things are seen as being in the national interest or state interest, for example. Um, now Anthony has a bit of a technical question that I, I don't know uh, exactly what it is, but hopefully you will. Um, why don't we have a mutual recognition system for licensed occupations? Well, it's all been seen as uh, too hard. I mean, this is what they're looking. Well, could you explain to... first, like, what this would mean? Like, wh what does mutual recognition mean, and what sort of occupations are we? Well, it means if you get a ticket to be, say, a plumber or, or an electrician in uh, in New South Wales, then you can go into Queensland or Victoria, and you don't have to fill in any other paperwork to to actually operate. You're not breaching the regulation. I don't know about New South Wales and Victoria specifically, but or New South Wales and Queensland. Uh, so you know, electricians, plumbers, gas fitters. I think them teachers may even be. They may even face issues. You might need to register with appropriate boards. Uh, so that's the idea. You, you'd say that if one state or territory gives you a ticket, gives you a tick of approval, then that is recognised across the whole nation, and now that sort of that's been what stood what stood in the way of that is you have uh, industry bodies or representatives of these different professions who would argue well our, or and, and or state governments the regulators who'd argue that our regulations are superior and uh, you know you should meet our standards you should come up to our level rather than you know we don't want this. We think your regulations are too lax. Uh, I probably can't give any specific examples here, but that's the general idea. But there could also be an element of you know, self-interest here because the the guilds or the uh, the groups representing those professions don't want you know, interstate competition. That could be one of the drivers. Now, 
Sam is all with you on sunsetting regulations. All regulations should have a sunset date unless they're explicitly re-legislated. But he wants to ask, uh, environmental regulations often get weaponized by government agencies and activists to frustrate, stop, or slow reasonable projects and their strong vested interests in maintaining them. That is, their entire organizations whose raison d'etre is to use these tools to slow down projects. So given those strong vested interests in maintaining existing regulations, how can they be removed? Well, this is where uh, organizations such as the Center for Independent Studies play <laughs> such an important role. So I'm not joking. I mean, this is this is serious. So this is where we need organizations like CIS and, and IPA to really push this information out there, push, you know, say just how costly a lot of these regulations are and how we need, uh, you know, greater, uh, we need to improve these regulations and and getting in the public debate and and making sure that the politicians know that these are important uh, things to to work on. Now, this corona crisis, given the, you know, the economic uh, damage that's been done and the deep recession that we're, we're in and possibly will be in for many, many more months. I mean, we've got the insolvency tsunami coming up, the default cliff, the, the fiscal cliff. If things could get things could get really bad. I mean, bad already, but a lot worse. And and governments are going to be looking at how they can get the private sector going again. Now government government can only do so much and I mean there all this there's all this talk about let's boost infrastructure spending, but you know, that takes time and you want to make sure you don't invest in white elephants. So ultimately we, we need the private sector to be creating the bulk of the jobs. And one important part of that, in my view, is looking at all of these regulations which are constraining economic activity with no real public benefit or minimal public benefit and not enough to justify the regulations. Right. We um, have a question from Max uh, that, uh, again, I don't know the context, so could you please explain it for for listeners uh, before you answer it? Um, Given Scott's gas ultimatum, how long do you think it would take the Commonwealth to build a gas-fired power plant? Right. That's that's a good question. Uh, I guess it depends on... uh, where well, they're building it and the level well, of first, cooperation. what is what is the ultimatum? <laughs> Remember, we have viewers around the world. Uh, oh, this is this. Uh, I'm struggling. Uh, I'm, I'll have to get across it, but I mean, this is part of the government's new plan to develop this gas hub, isn't it? And and he, he also wants state governments to open up to uh, allow exploration and then. Uh, Drilling for coal seam gas, I think, isn't that part of it? With uh, oh, so Victor- the Victorian government, and I think to a lesser extent, New South Wales government have been uh, delaying the exploration and and drilling for coal seam gas, and that's seen as something that is uh, is has reduced supply in the market and is pushing up gas prices. Uh, and yeah, there's this big plan for for gas to to be, I mean, gas has always been talked about as a transition fuel from coal, coal, 
uh, before we get to uh, renewables or, or other or low carbon emitting uh, technologies. I might need uh, Max to Max probably know. It sounds like he's got he's more across this at the moment. This is something <laughs> that came out yesterday. I, I saw. Oh, was it? Okay, I heard that's why vaguely, I heard of it. <laughs> I, I, I know I roughly know what's going on, but Max probably has more of the background, so I'm sorry about that. Yeah, it's, it's funny. There, there's a Sherlock Holmes story that is uh, based on the idea of a coded message, and uh, it's January when they get the coded message, and it's coded based on an almanac, and they pull down the almanac, and they realize, oh, the problem we have is that we're using this year's almanac. All of our message is uh, out of date, right? We're, we pay the price for being too up-to-date is the line from Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Oh, that's okay, but but I think the general answer is that uh, it's going to depend on where they're building this gas hub. So I can't remember if it was in if it's in New South Wales or I mean if it's in New South Wales, then you'd expect that the, the, there's a they're both on the same side of politics. So that, I mean maybe they'll it'll be easier than if they try and build it in another state. Uh, so I suppose it depends on the location. But I'll have to confirm that exactly where the, where that was where they're planning to uh, to build that. We have a question from John uh, about taxation, and he says that uh, you know roughly one third of companies do not pay any tax in Australia, which is why a land value tax is a better option for the country. Now I know land tax is a perennial uh, issue that comes up. Should taxation be moved from an income base to a land base? Do you have any view on that, and particularly from the standpoint of simplifying uh, the regulatory load? Yes, uh, I think a, a tax on land values, that would certainly be better than the stamp duties on property transactions that are imposed at the moment, which are seen as increasing the cost of housing. Um, and you know, state governments and territory governments have been looking at that. So ACT has implemented some sort of land tax. I think they're phasing in a land tax to apply stamp duty over 20 years or something like that. I'll have, I'll have to look into the specifics. The New South Wales Treasurer has proposed something similar. So, yes, there's a lot of economic merit in land tax. Some people will be concerned about equity. I mean, what about uh, people who've been living in the same place for decades and suddenly they have to pay a new tax? That, that'll annoy a lot of, lot of people. Regarding the company tax, uh, sure, I mean, yeah, a lot of companies may not be paying tax in one year, but they may not have made a profit. Um, we have to, I'm not sure that you can make a judgment about particular companies and whether they're rotting the system or not and unless you look closely at whether they're engaging in transfer pricing to what extent there might be transactions with uh, related entities overseas that aren't arm's length so to speak so i i i'm, I'm not sure how look there there are concerns that there are, there could be some Rorting or some uh, tax avoidance, but the government has put in place fairly strong legislation, if I remember correctly, to crack down on that sort of, um, well, uh, concerning transfer pricing where it isn't really arm's length. There's that diverted profits tax I think they may have implemented, if I remember correctly. So if the ATO can, can prove that 
profits have been diverted overseas wrongly, then they can tax it at 40% if I... I'll have to look that no, don't up. Don't worry. But, no, don't yeah, worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's, I think that's a separate issue. There's an issue about yeah. land tax. Uh, typically, it's, it's framed, the debate is about whether we should replace stamp duty with right. land tax. There are there are concerns. I mean, we do need to be concerned that international companies, multinationals, uh, the big mining companies, which have their marketing agencies in Singapore or uh, right. where they sell the the product to those agencies, and you have to make sh- you want to make sure that they're selling it at a at a market rate so that they're not artificially transferring profits to the foreign entity. Let's not go. Let's not okay. go too far down the tax evasion rabbit hole. Okay. <laughs> there are lots sure, of yeah. and, I, and I'd like to focus on your own work, which is, of course, on, on regulation. Anthony has uh, a question. This is a big one. Should the Commonwealth vacate the environmental regulations field entirely, meaning that we would have more of a competitive federalist system? Um, or would, would you like rather say the opposite, that the states vacate that field and there's a single unified system at the Commonwealth level? I think it would have to be the states that vacate the field because Australia has a lot of international obligations. So some of the environmental uh, regulations that have been imposed that are due with international obligations, so particularly there was an agreement, I think is it Ramsar? Uh, I think it was in Iran in the in the 70s where it was signed... Uh, and that has to do with wetlands, protection of wetlands. And so there are obligations that come from that. Now, I may be biased because I'm a former Australian uh, Treasury official. And I think, look, from what I've seen, I've worked at both the Commonwealth and the state level. And I think the quality of administration and policy advice at the Commonwealth level is, is far superior to the state level. And I would prefer to see, you know, national arrangements for that. I would prefer us to have a, you know, we should have a debate about federalism and federation and appropriate assignment of responsibilities. I think we've we've needed to have that for a long time. The Abbott government had a a great, they they had a commission looking at that. They, I know that, uh, who was it? I know Doug McTaggart who's a well-known uh, director, company director here in Queensland, he was involved in it. But that ended up getting uh, cancelled when Malcolm Turnbull took over. I thought that was very disappointing. I think it'd be good to to have uh, a look at those roles and responsibilities. My preference would be for the Commonwealth to, to regulate the environment. Now, it's easy for us to, you know, poke fun at regulations or to criticise them or to dream of a world in which, you know, unfettered by regulation, business is going to zoom ahead and make a better world for everyone. That all sounds wonderful, but look, surely we don't want to return to the kind of unregulated capitalism we had before food safety laws, before you know, drug regulation, before building codes. So where are you seeking a medium there? I, I mean, we don't want to get rid of all regulations. So how are you going to get regulations right? Through a, a, a decent process. Look, I agree with you, Salvatore. I, I don't want to have to go back to that uh, 
that uh, world that existed, uh, what, late 19th century, early 20th century, where we had uh, milk being, you know, taint, people were drinking tainted milk, for example. Uh, we don't want to go back to that world. That's correct. The, what we need is to have a process whereby we're reviewing these regulations and evaluating whether they are in the public interest, whether we could adjust them to allow more freedom, to allow more job creation without adversely you know, damaging the, the public interest. And that's, I think cost-benefit analysis is an important tool in that regard. So we need to make sure we examine these regulations in depth and really work out how we can how we can improve them. Now, I think the Productivity Commission nationally does does an excellent job at doing that. We experimented with having a Queensland Productivity Commission here in Queensland, but I think the government didn't like some of the reports it was putting out. It recently put out one saying how bad how poorly performing our economy up here was doing <laughs> was before COVID, and so now it's been rolled into the treasury. Uh, I think. Uh, Victoria might have a its own productivity commission. So we need more, we need more, I mean, uh, this is in my own self-interest as an economist <laughs> who gets involved in these processes, but I think we need more economic analysis of these regulations. Now, well, I, I could turn that a, right I, back at you and say, you're giving me a recipe for yet more delay, right? What we need is more commissions, no, more the, the analysis. Yeah, analysis of the regulations to, well, but you were saying you don't want to go back to that sure. that world, you know, the sort of Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrug type of world. I, I don't support that either. But we can't, It's I'd, I'd prefer a proper look at these regulations, work out what's in the public interest, how we can tweak those settings rather than just, you know, saying, oh, let's just throw out all of these regulations and, and then go from a zero base or, you know, a, what is it, one in, two out rule. I'm not sure that that's sensible. I think we need to, you know, have a close look at these these regulations with proper cost-benefit analysis. Now, having said that, I, you know, politicians ultimately have to make these decisions and the economists will can quantify as much as they can, but they should be clear what they can't quantify and what it is for the politicians to make value judgments on to decide, well, okay, how much are we willing to pay to reduce the risk to society of, of, this, uh, of this particular eventuality occurring? And you know, this, is, this is a debate we're having at the moment with uh, you know, COVID-19. Now, now uh, I can't let you go before I do ask you about one funny regulation that I learned about from reading your draft paper. These are rules on the locations of pharmacies. Now, I live very close to King's Cross, and I will say that I think there are five pharmacies on that little stretch of Darlinghurst Road that is King's Cross. So I was shocked to hear that there are limits on the number of pharmacies. I can't imagine why people in King's Cross would need so many drugs, but that's beside that's a separate issue. Are there really regulations that are telling companies where they can locate pharmacies? Yes, so this was one of the uh, the regulations that was highlighted by the the Harper review. 
and it's essentially well i think it's protection of uh of existing pharmacies and you know, you know it's from this old this idea this is why i think a lot of these regulations are anachronistic it's based on you know this idea we should be supporting these uh you know mum and dad operations or the traditional family pharmacy and the pharmacy guild argues that we need regulations like this so we don't end up with all the pharmacies in the the affluent areas but you know it's in their interest to try to limit the the number of pharmacies that are out there and so we have regulations around this and i mean we should look at this more closely because i think a lot of these a lot of pharmaceuticals could probably be dispensed uh, by a, you know by a store in within supermarkets for example that's a possibility so we have all of these rules that are constraining where we can get uh pharmaceuticals so yes that is one of the the issues that we cover in the report uh and yes uh, uh, it was one it was th it was uh, identified in the harper review this is a long-standing uh, problem we have in australia now uh, Sam must have a pool because uh, Sam is concerned about pool regulations. He says regulations have become income sources for government too. And he gives the example of New South Wales has enacted a pool inspectors law to certify domestic pools. So councils can charge fees for coming to inspect your pool. Sam, I'm happy to come over and inspect your pool anytime. Summer is coming and uh, I'll be waiting for that invitation. Gene, any final thoughts on pool inspections? Not so much. I wasn't aware of that, Sam. So I'll, I'll have to take that, note that and uh, look into it. But yeah, I mean, that's a good example of you know, possibly where uh, yeah, we are overregulated and uh, yeah, oh, they're using it as an income source. I mean, that's quite clever. I mean, I have to admire that. But look, the, look, there is a serious issue. Well, in my view, I think that there could be some justification for regulations around pools because of the risk of uh, you know children drowning. So I, I wouldn't want to add advocate for abolishing uh, reg regulations around pools. It's not something I've, I've, I haven't, that's not one of the issues I cover in my paper. <laughs> we'll, we'll take that on notice. Thank you, Gene Tunney, for joining us today. Thanks, Salvador. Pleasure. Much appreciated. Next Tuesday at 3 p.m., there will be an On Liberty Extra special edition starring Glenn Fay, uh, my colleague here at the Center for Independent Studies. He will be interviewing New South Wales Productivity Commissioner Peter Ochterstrup. Uh, thanks, everyone, for watching. Our producer today is Emily Holmes. Executive producer is Max Hawk Weaver. The director of CIS is Tom Switzer. I'm Salvador Bonus. Next week, we will have John anderson on the show so make sure you tune in then i'll look forward to it thanks everyone for watching